Good morning. It's nice to be here in the big room. All right, welcome to the panel. Is your startup ready for venture capital? Um, we're, uh, we're here in the middle of the, what's now Silicon Valley North, San Francisco, and uh, the annual Music Tech Summit, and so venture capital and investment, I'm sure, is, is uh, on everybody's mind. So we've got a terrific panel this morning, and let's, let's start by having the panelists introduce themselves. Maybe we'll start down at that end. Larry, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. I'm uh, Larry Marcus. I'm at Walden Venture Capital, based out of San Francisco and Woodside, and we do Sprout Stage Investing. We're investing out of a new fund that we had a first close in at the end of... Uh, end of last quarter, and I've got a, a variety of companies in and around the music space, though we focus broadly on digital media and cloud services, but uh, I happen to love music and have invested in a bunch of companies in and around the music space uh, as both uh, at the fund level and as an angel. Great. Thanks. Fred. Hi, I'm uh, Fred Goldring. I uh, currently a... Uh, I've been a long-time music and tech lawyer based in Los Angeles. Uh, I have been doing a bunch of startups and consulting. Uh, my latest company is called Music Aficionado, which you can check out at musicaficionado.com. Uh, I've also been an investor uh, and have consulted, been in the digital convergence space since the early days of mp3.com and Napster and Digital On Demand, and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to being uh, in part of the discussion today. Hi, Ethan Jacks. I'm a co-founder and managing partner at MediaBridge Capital Advisors. Uh, we are investment bankers, and I know you cringe when you hear that word, but <laughs> we're not that bad. Um, I was a senior executive at, at Avid Technology for about seven years. Uh, back then, Avid owned something called DigiDesign, which has now been folded into Avid. I ran the mergers and acquisitions program there and bought companies like uh, Sibelius and M Audio and um, several others in the music space as well as the video space. Um, our firm represents small to medium-sized companies either trying to raise capital, venture capital or private equity, or selling their, their business to a third part party, typically a much bigger company. My name is Eric Moore. I'm from Richmond, California. I spent a lot of time on the East Coast. Uh, I've been investing for quite a while now, personally. Uh, been, it was an, I wasn't, I'm a reformed investment banker, actually, um, for about 15 years. And uh, I was one of the original investors in Zappos.com um, back in 99, 2000, and uh, uh, am now probably, uh, uh, Tony Shea is the largest investor in my fund. So I guess Zappos is kind of like music, I don't know. Um, but uh, Music for your feet. <laughs> music for your feet, right. So I haven't done a lot of music, in, uh, you know, you're investing in your sector just because it just seems like everybody gets fucked. So I don't know. Until you guys, <laughs> so it, maybe if you guys can convince me otherwise, I'd be happy to listen. You're investing but, in the wrong stuff. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> probably. But um, but anyway, yeah, I'm psyched to be here, and I'm pretty. I'm kind of a jackass up here, so um, I'm normally nice. But I, you know, if you, if you talk to me afterwards, I'll be different. But up here, I tend to be kind of a jerk. So. Sweet. <laughs> All right. And I'm Eric Ferraro. Uh, I am the uh, founder of Fathom Law. We're an exclusive uh, boutique law firm focusing on what we believe are the best breed of uh, venture tech companies and venture investors. We do some other stuff as well, but our, our primary focus is representing the startup ecosystem, um, both sides from 
idea stage to exit. Uh, we work really closely with our companies. All of our lawyers have been entrepreneurs as well at one point. I think that's really important to differentiate the way we work with our clients. Uh, I was a music tech entrepreneur. Um, I started a digital distributor with some friends and Eight years later, nine years later, we ultimately got uh, rolled up by the Sony Orchard. I should say fucked by the Sony Orchard acquisition. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we, know how, uh, we know how it works. Uh, music tech is tough. We'll talk a little bit about music tech investing, which is still a different, uh, which is still a different I think, you know, ecosystem than the larger tech investing, but they are sort of normalizing, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So is your startup ready for venture capital? How many people here have a startup or work for a startup, have had startups? Okay, just about everybody. Cool. Um, how many are new or seed stage? And how many are venture-backed? Okay, so, so there you go. All right, so the, this is really sort of typical for the Bay Area now, we have a huge seed ecosystem. Um, we'll talk a little bit what that, about what that means for the venture capital uh, investment dynamic. Uh, let's, let's start, though, and talk a little bit about what, what do we mean by venture capital. Um, yeah, sure. I, I think it would be interesting to see how many people have tried to get venture capital funding okay. sure. but ha- yeah, what yeah. haven't been able to successful at it. Okay, well, good. Show of hands? Okay. Yeah. So and the rest just aren't admitting it, I guess, right? So, so what do what do we mean, uh, Ethan? What what do we mean by venture yeah, capital? You know, it's it's a really simple and important question. Um, I would encourage you all to think about getting financing from whatever reasonable source you can find, and it's great if you can get venture capital. But even the demographics here show that it's it's actually pretty damn hard. So, what are the alternatives? Your own money friends and family, uh, some form of early, early, early stage seed investor that will take a chance, uh, Kickstarter is becoming, or other uh, crowdfunding uh, sources, which you know, slowly but surely are going to become a source of what I call equity-based financing. But I, I really believe that if you have a good idea, you've got to get some kind of third-party capital. Number one, you need the money. Number two, it validates your business plan. It's a third party says, I like your story, I'm betting with you. It could be 10,000 bucks, could be 10 million bucks or somewhere in between. And there are you know, traps for the unwary in getting the money and I'll talk a little bit about things you should be sensitive to in your negotiations and your deal. But fundamentally, if you've got a good idea, you probably should get some capital, quote unquote, venture capital. Uh- that's a great advice, and I'd like to add one thing to that. You know, when you, when you come up with an idea that you think is really terrific and you start to vet it with your friends and your family, 99% of the time they're not going to want to tell you that you're out of your mind and your idea sucks. And they're going to yes you to death and smile and think, tell you that you've got the greatest thing in the world. It isn't until somebody's willing to write a check for you, and it can be your friends or your family or someone else, that will be the first step in validating, like you said, Ethan, about whether your idea is worth pursuing, because that's the first thing you really have to consider. You can't believe your own hype, because uh, when you look in the mirror and you look at your thing, it's easy to convince yourself that you've got the next thing, whatever that is, and you know it's going to change the world. 
But until somebody is really willing to write that first check for you, whether it's a VC or your friends or your family or whoever else or Kickstarter, you know, if, if no one is willing to do that after a certain amount of time, you might not have as good an idea as you think you have. And I, I would argue, though, that your friend writing you a check is much different from one of us writing you a check, right? Because your friends are backing you because you're who you are and whatnot. And, and, you know, everybody's got a great idea. If I get another great idea, I mean, I, just about everybody I meet with has a great idea. doesn't mean, it means absolute shit, right? Because, you know, until you can, you know, execute on this, on this great idea, it doesn't mean anything. And, and frankly, if it's a bad idea but you can execute, I almost prefer that. Because um, how do I know what the next great thing is going to be, right? Who, who thought selling shoes online was going to be worth three, you know, billion dollars? You or did, whatever. apparently. I know I didn't actually. <laughs> I, I didn't. I just believed in Tony Shea, um, who I'd known, who had sold his second, first company for $300 million. So, it, so it's not the idea. It's, it's, and, 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 and don't, you know, getting money from your friends is interesting and it's good and it's important, but it's, it's different from getting uh, institutional or, or professional money, which is what we do. Yeah, I think there's a real important distinction to be made between what we're going to talk about as venture capital up here on the panel today, which, which doesn't mean any capital that comes into a venture. I mean, when we talk about venture capital, we're talking about generally venture capital funds that are managing limited partners' money, other people's money. And uh, there are a lot of really important things to think about when you're building a company as you plan on or hope to raise venture capital. And it's important to understand that very few companies fit the profile for venture capital investment. And then even fewer of those are going to have you know, long-term probabilities of successful exits. And so it's a, there's a lot of pressure there. And Larry, maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, what makes for the right kind of a, a, a company or even an idea in terms of scope that will enable it to be, uh, you know, ultimately a venture capital-backed, uh, venture capital-backed idea or company. Sure. Well, you know, in the ecosystem, there's probably sixty to seventy thousand angel or seed deals done a year, and that's actually the easiest money uh, to raise because that's when you can get the friends and family type investment, find high net worth individuals who believe in you. And a lot of those investments are done in ideas. Um, our strategy, when, when, where I want to look at deals, is actually after you've done something uh, really exciting, and I can see it with my own eyes. So this notion of sprout stage is really that I can see it, and there's a real wow factor from what I'm seeing. And in fact, I don't even want to hear about ideas and I don't even want to take a meeting before I've seen a really great demo because I know that it's not a deal that I'm interested in doing. So I'd rather really just wait until that demo is available. And that, by the way, is the best way to show me your company is to actually show me the product. Um, and, And if it's really exciting and it catches my eye, then I'm really excited to drill down and understand the team and... Um, the plan and the goals on, on what's really going to happen. So back to a little bit what Eric started talking about, which is, you know, how do you recognize something? Uh, it's really important to make a lot of progress. And I think of, of something uh, that's really like a hustle ratio. 
that shows that you know how to hustle and you know how to make things happen. And it's really how much have you accomplished over divided by how much money you've raised. And so if you've raised a lot of money and you've done very little with it, that's a really bad thing. Um, from, from my perspective, it may be a great thing for you, but <laughs> I want to see that you've, you know, you're going you're gonna to succeed. You're going to make things happen, and you're not waiting around for extra capital, other things to happen. You're really uh, going to make it work. And so if you have an amazing product and you've got that great hustle ratio, those are, are two things that, that get me super fired up. So, so just an, an aside here, you know, I've been, I've been a, a venture capital lawyer now for uh, 15 or 16 years, at least doing deals in the, in the venture industry for that long. And one of the things that we try to do is to really learn from the venture investors and how they think and even incorporating into the way we talk with our clients, you know, bringing to, to bear some of the, the mentality of the venture investor. So I'm, I'm, I'm adding a hustle ratio to my lexicon. That's going to be in every new go. client meeting from now on. I'm going to have to ask about hustle ratio. Add, Hashtag hustle ratio. Yeah. So, so I love Larry, it. when you're looking at, a, a, you hear ideas, you're investing ideas. How much of it is the idea and how much of it is the people behind the idea and the team behind the idea that you look at? Well, I'm, I'm not doing ideas at all, so it would be 0% idea. But let me back up just a little bit, okay, because b- before, we, before we talk about how to evaluate a particular founding team or idea or product, let's just step back a little bit and talk about th- those businesses or ideas that will or won't be suitable for venture capital. Eric... Uh, what I'm thinking about here is, you know, what's the scope of the idea, right? We hear a lot about feature versus, you know, fully evolved company or something in the middle and sweet spot, the ability to, you know, the ability to, in theory, achieve really explosive returns without a tremendous amount of capital invested. And I think that really sophisticated investors can, can you know, position an idea in the may be appropriate for venture capital or probably won't be appropriate for venture capital categories without any execution at all. Can, sure. can you speak to that? Sure. There are a few things that I'll talk about. And then also keep in mind that uh, Larry, is, you know, all venture capitalists are different, right? Um, some will not look at ideas. Some will only look at products and then uh, at an early stage. And then some will, some frankly won't even look at that. They'll look at them once they've gotten not only a product, but they've gotten some traction. So that they may be Series A or Series B investors, and then some. Some people, you know, like I'll just I'll do anything. I mean, you know, I'll do anything. Um, I'm a little nutty like that. Um, it's worked for me though. I've had five exits too. So fuck you, right? So um, <laughs> hashtag. Um, so so. <laughs> but but so but but that said, if you come to me, I don't know you. I've never seen you. You've got a, you've got this great idea theoretically on paper, and you know I ask you what your background is, and you told me I you know I was a water polo captain or whatever. I, and you're trying to do a music thing now. I got no. I, we don't even have to talk any further. If you have an idea, um, and you come to me, and you you know, frankly, not not come to me directly, but through somebody else that I know. Um, so you you're kind of vetted that way. So you so there's so you are to some degree curated just by how you, you know how you got to me, how you arrived to me, um, and you tell me that your idea is uh, or your background is very much related to what you're currently working on. 
you know, you may have even exited from a previous company that did something similar to this. Um, and although you don't have a, a, a product built, um, we're close to it, and this is what it looks like. And you, you know, you give, you give me, you've given me screenshots and so on and so forth. I'll, I'll, I'll have that conversation. And uh, and if I think you're, you know, Paul Graham, who's who runs and founded Y Combinator, has a quote that he's, you know, uh, when he looks at founders to see if they're the opposite of hapless. So you're focused, you're mature, you know, you you kind of get the idea. You're not, you're not, uh, you know, just kind of shooting in the dark about things, and you know, you have a well thought out. Um, reason as to why you're doing it and why this might work, um, I would look at that. But in terms of the metrics that you might look at um, to, whether, to determine whether or not, or discern whether or not the company that you're starting is venture backable, um, you know, this, this is, I hate even talking about this stuff because it's, it's boring, it's mundane, you can get this on the internet, but, you know, is the market size big enough? Is it a big enough market that you're attacking? Um, you know, uh, you know what, what, are, what, is, what is your background as a founder? Is there, is there domain expertise on your team? You know, how long has a team been together? Uh, you, know, is, is, uh, you know, is there a technical co-founder on the team? Is there somebody who knows how to code and who, and who can iterate? You know, at any hour of the of the night, not and they're not based overseas somewhere, right? If you if you have a if you have a technical team that's you know that's farmed out and they're they're based in you know you name the country, you know it's less interesting. Excuse me, less in, less interesting to me. If you're you know, uh, and 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 frankly, if the co-founder um, does not have a large stake equity stake in the company, I'm less interested too, right? Um, so there there and it really depends on how technical your your product is. Uh, how you know, and so there's a sliding scale. If it's less technical, maybe I'll, there's some leeway there around that. So those are kind of some of the basics. You know, the size of the market, whether or not you're attacking something big, and you know the team dynamics, right? Because m- mostly, most of these teams blow up because the founders blow up, right? So how long have you guys known each other? How, if you just met this person, you know, ha- you know, a month or a handful of months ago, and, and you're talking about starting this business, eh, I want to know that you've worked together before. You've done something tough together before. Uh, and there's another really big p- point that I'll bring up later in the thing, but probably most important for me in terms of how I look at companies. But it's less metricy. So I, I think I, w- this stuff may be a little bit boring, and you can get it on the internet, but it's really relevant because everybody here has a startup, and everybody in this you know broader community has a startup, and it's important that you aim down the right path. Not every company is necessarily right for venture capital, and venture capital isn't necessarily good for, for every company. So understand what you're building. There are, there are companies that can be cash machines that will provide a tremendous lifestyle for the founding team um, that don't need venture capital and wouldn't return the kind of returns that a venture investor needs. Um, so, you know, I think it's just really important to sort of have – the right assessment on both sides, on the company side, the founder side, and the investor side as to whether the fit is, is right. Um, Ethan, maybe you can talk a little bit as you approach this from the investment banking side when you're helping sure. companies raise capital. My expectation is that you're probably helping later stage companies, but Actually, talk a little bit about yeah, that. I, yeah. um, my good friend Jay here from Isotope, I helped them raise $12 million last year from a private equity source, and, and uh, that's a company with a, with, with a great run that never had, for 10 years, no outside capital whatsoever, had an ambitious business plan, frankly, wouldn't get there without just some fresh money in the tank, and um, a good story, and we helped them raise some good money from some good people. I've also worked more on kind of a friend's basis as a board member and investor in some startups uh, 
guy named Willie Henshaw, who some of you may know, was in the band The London Beat, and started something called Rocket Networks in the 90s, which is one of the original wide area network collaboration things for people uh, collaborating in, in sessions. Uh, then founded a company called Dulcetta, which was soundtracks for ebooks, and has now pivoted into something called Focus at Will. Um, great guy, incredibly articulate, somebody you would like. And you know, he's raised $3 million of, of Series A money. A guy named Mike Levine has a company called Happy Giant, which raised money on the strength of a uh, social game for Jay-Z's life. It was going to be a Facebook game. Unfortunately, uh, there was not enough crime in it, so it failed miserably. <laughs> but he still raised $3 million, and now he's doing some more traditional kind of Angry Birds type stuff, and he's doing quite well. Angry sister-in-laws. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to dumb this down. I'm going to suggest you guys and gals remember three C's when it comes to considering capital. One is cost, cost of capital. Well, when you're getting a loan, it has an interest rate. That's the cost of capital. When you're getting equity, you are going to be diluted. You're gonna, if you start the business with 100%, you're going to go from 100 to something lower. It could be 50 or 40 or 30, depending on how your company is valued and how much money you're bringing in. So cost. Control. If you sell 51% of the equity, you have literally handed control to that investor. They may or may not use it. They may or may not abuse it. But the fact is you have sold control to your business. And if it's under 51%, but the investor has a lot of contractual provisions or they're just really aggressive people, you may have shared control now in a non-trivial way, something you weren't used to before you had that investment. And the third C is compatibility. You are marrying this investor. You're, you're, you're getting married, and it will be very difficult and painful and costly to dissolve that marriage. So choose wisely. So... When we had the show of hands earlier, we saw that so many people here have seed stage startups, but very few have companies that are that are venture backed. Um, and I think this is a really important item to focus on. We have such a mature seed ecosystem now, and I'd like to talk a little bit about what that means for the prospects of raising venture capital. How many people here are familiar with the term Series A crunch? Okay, so it's, it's, a, it's a term that's out there, and it's, you know, you get a lot of uh, divergent opinions on whether it's real and what it means. And Larry, can you talk a little bit about, you know, you're a, you're a seed or a sprout stage investor. Can you talk about what you're seeing that's different today um, versus 10 years ago when we didn't have this mature sprout or seed stage ecosystem? And how does that, you know, how does that result in downstream financings? Well, the cost of starting a business is so much lower than it ever used to be with all of the outsourced computing services, the ability to just, just rent desks, work out of your homes. You know, you don't have to buy computers for everybody anymore. And that's part of what's led to this huge explosion of new companies. Additionally, there's been you know some really exciting exits, and particularly here in the Bay Area, you just have huge immigration of people who love technology, who really you know, want to change the world and feel very deeply that they can make it happen. So all this is combined to lead to this huge amount of company, <clears throat> huge amount of company formation. 
So you have these 60,000, 70,000 angel deals essentially coming down to about 100 venture capital firms that can write a Series A check. So if you wanted to raise, you know, three to $5 million, there's essentially 100 firms left that can do that. And that's down from maybe six, 700 firms back in 2000. So huge consolidation in the venture capital industry. And for, for our strategy where we're sitting, it's meaning that we can really wait to see that there's that delightful creation of product and real progress before, before taking that leap. There's magic comes in many different forms, you know, may not be an actual completed product. It may be an incredible uh, technology that has great potential as a product. So, I mean, like that was the case with Pandora. When I originally saw it, it was uh, the music genome project in Savage Beast and playing with the back end was an incredible experience so the thought was, wow, this could really be something that we could build a great consumer service on and build a brand on. And so we did a financing and, and brought in some new people uh, to supplement uh, Tim and, and the founding group who was there to develop that service and then launch Pandora later. Or uh, a SoundHound, where it was the amazing core technology in search but it had a wacky brand. The product wasn't really working that well. That was in uh, 2008. We got it rebranded to SoundHound and watching this delightful experience come alive. So I think you have to really cut through the clutter and make great progress. I just want to make one other really important point about the product. The reason I keep mentioning the product is that viral adoption and word of mouth has never been more effective People love their apps. It's a part of the culture. They love their products. And when people love products, they talk about it. And that's the best way to acquire a user, not by buying users, but by people loving it and telling their friends. That's why when I see that magic, I know it means it's going to translate into low or no marketing dollars because people are just going to want to adopt it. And then that brand starts having real meaning. The meaning of a brand is how people experience your product. So if your product is amazing, people are going to think that your brand is really amazing. So I think when you raise this early stage capital, you just don't want to squander it in any way. You, you want to make as much progress as you can and be as focused as you can because it's much harder to go back to the angels second time that's called the dreaded re-up, and it's, it, people's mood about how excited they are about what you're doing seems to change a lot when you go back and ask them for money again. So they're like, I thought you were supposed to deliver me this huge exit based on that small amount of money. You're like, well, actually, you know, we're still trying to figure things out. We think now this is the thing, and they're like, uh-oh, you know, what do I do? So... I think a lot of companies die in that space, but the ones who get really focused and I think, you know, focus on their product are the ones that figure out how to crack through. Once you raise that, that Series A and you continue to make that progress, there's actually huge amounts of money, you know, downstream from there. I mean, everybody's looking for expansion stage opportunities where it's really working and it's easy to continue to prove it. So I don't, I don't want people to get 
yeah, there's a Series A crunch, but years ago there's a Series B crunch, and it just, it's all cyclical. It doesn't it doesn't fucking matter anyway, right? If your company sucks, you're not gonna get funding. If your company is good, it'll get funding, right? So don't get bogged down in saying in the thinking. Oh, you know the 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 market's constricting, and it's not gonna. Yeah, there are fewer there are fewer VCs out there. There's fewer, but if your company is good and you're doing good stuff and you've got traction, we're we're obligated to come talk to you. If your company sucks and you're just doing what everybody else is doing, and it's not that it's not terribly interesting, yeah, you you shouldn't get funded because you're only wa- you're wasting their their money and your time because eventually it'll 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 flesh out and you'll go bye bye right. So it's probably better for everybody that you know the market is correcting, but it, it's it's nothing to be concerned about. Just build it, be concerned about your product being great. And the rest of it is, is yeah. Uh, so, so Fred, I said earlier, um, you know, maybe Eric sort of viscerated this uh, this this idea with it. You know, it just doesn't matter, and if it's good, you'll get funded. And if you don't, you know, if it's not, you won't. But um, I'm going to hold on to this idea that you know some companies are meant for VC, and VC is meant for some companies, and some can be very successful without it. And you know, we talked earlier about mm-hmm. y- your thoughts that you know venture capital isn't necessarily the 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 gold standard or what every company should aspire to. Why don't you talk a little bit about you know your, your thoughts about that? Having been an well, I, yeah, no, I, I think the first thing to think about is why you really need to think about what your motivation is for for going after VC funding in the first place. For a lot of people, it's kind of like this. I think that we threw this word around earlier: validation. It's sort of, hey, you know, my company is cool enough and important enough and relevant enough that VCs want to put money into it, and you know, and that that's certainly a very you know, uh, good thing when you're talking about you know transitioning from sixty or seventy thousand. How many was it with the seed seed? Uh, you said sixty or seventy thousand seed 60, 70, investors to a hundred you know venture capital firms. You know you've now made it to the next round, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that this is the kind of money you should be taking because I think as everybody on the panel has pointed out, there are downsides to taking money. I mean, the, you know, the most important one is you've now got partners that may be very influential in the in the course of your business going forward and at some point you may come to to loggerheads with the people who are now on your board and can, and your partners about the direction of the company and they may want to take the company in a completely different direction than you envisioned because they now are writing a check and they can dictate where it's going so that's the first thing the second thing is just because somebody wants to throw a lot of money at you doesn't mean, necessarily mean that you should take it because it comes with a price venture capital uh, and funds are in business to make money. They generally have, I, I'd say, probably a 10-year limited partner term. They invest their money generally in the first three years, so you have a certain amount of time to return on that investment. And so now there's a lot of pressure on you to, to return results. And interestingly, if you look at the companies that have the biggest valuations out there right now, none of them have revenue models. I wouldn't say none of them, but, but a, lot, a lot of the big ones, like um, you know Snapchat for, for sure, uh, Pinterest. I mean, every time Pinterest, there's a rumor that Pinterest is, has a revenue model. The CEO runs out and gives a press conference and says, no, 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 we have no idea how we're going to make money. Because, God forbid, you know, then there's something to look at. There's a metric. And, and there's this tension now between venture capitals, particularly with this, this Series A crunch, where you know, the first question is, what's your revenue model? How are you expecting to make, to make money? And how are we going to return on our investment? And 
I'm, I actually question whether some of the companies that today are some of the biggest companies with the highest valuations have no revenue models would even get the kind of venture money that they would have gotten, you know, a few years ago when there were a lot more venture capital firms around. So, you know, and you can, you can actually end up taking too much money, too. So you really have to think about what do you need the money for? You know, do you need, you know, generally you'll get, well, it's going to get me through the next 18 months and I want to put another 25 to 50% on top of that to give me some flexibility so that it'll get me, you know, so you don't have to get into this situation Larry's talking about earlier where you got to go back to the well and beg for more money. But you can also have too much money and then you set your valuation too high because you got people throwing money at you and then you find out that you haven't reached these goals and you're going back and you're in a down round now, which is, you know, meaning you're, you're raising money at a lower valuation than you did when you raised money in the prior time and that can and be looked at as a negative going forward. So I guess the, the headline is make sure you know why you're looking for venture capital money and that you really are, have your eyes open about what you are giving up in order to take that kind of money versus doubling down on yourself, bootstrapping, maybe get some more friends and family money or some of the other ways to, to put money into your company. I'm going to just uh, parlay that comment about exit. I used an analogy earlier that you're marrying your partner, but you will not mate for life. Um, the business of these investors is to let that investment mature and then create liquidity because they have to give that money back to their investors. So you don't get to keep it forever, five, six, seven years, probably the max. And it's got to come back, as far as they're concerned, with a return. If you're a private equity investor, three to four times their capital. If you're a venture investor, 10, 15 20 times their capital. These are extraordinary outcomes, and frankly, they don't happen very often, but that's, that's the expectation when you take that money. So if you're thinking about a lifestyle company and not that there's anything wrong with that, do not get venture capital because the two worlds do not mesh. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's important to have these things in mind from the, let's call it the the sell side, okay, from the, the company perspective, should I, shouldn't I take venture capital? The reality is that most of that decision matrix will happen on the buy side, on the investor side. And, you know, y y there may be those cases where an investor, a venture investor, wants to put money into your company, and there might be valid reasons why you might not want to take it. But for the most part, if a venture investor does their diligence, they decide that you have the, the right kind of company, the ability to produce outsized returns, to return their entire fund. I mean, a venture investor needs each company they invest in to theoretically be able to return their entire fund because the returns will be low. So, you know, if they're willing to put money in, it's a pretty safe bet that you've got the right kind of company, that the team has, you know, met the, the hurdle for, uh, to inspire confidence in the investors, and, and you probably are a, you know, a venture-backable company. Let's talk about one other really important issue that venture investors look at when they're investing in companies, and, and you talk about, you know, Pinterest, um, and some other, some other breakout examples of companies that may not have business models, um, but they're just so massive in scale and in user adoption that, you know, all the other sort of rules go out the window, and the assumption is they're so big that we'll figure out a way to monetize all of this uh, engagement. You know, Twitter was the, the same way for a long time and maybe arguably still is. Um, but but if you're not a massive company with massive engagement, then you really have to think about what are your defensible 
issues? You know, do you have real technical differentiation? And in particular, if you're not first to market giant company, you've got to have technical differentiation because without technical differentiation, it's easy for competitors to come into the space. And then what you have is a pricing race to the bottom and that will cripple returns for investors. And so, Ethan, you probably think about sort of IP and technical differentiation when you're advising your clients. I do, talk I about do. That and, and I think it's a little bit of a quandary. Um, you know, the conventional wisdom and, and the venture investors here, I think, will back this up, that you should have some level of unique, defensible, proprietary um, intellectual property. And frankly, the best way to prove that is that you have a patent or a few patents because then you've gotten the you know the world to say that this is a novel and non-obvious idea. Not that that patent can't be attacked later down the road. That happens all the time. But at least you've got kind of you know first case proof that what your idea is is novel and non-obvious and you have a legal monopoly to it. Um, patents are expensive to get. They're expensive to defend. And I think there's an open question now about at the end of the day, whether they're worth it, and they may or may not be relevant in your industry. Short of that, you've got to have um, a serious trade secret portfolio of intellectual property that you ideally have developed yourself, or if you've licensed it, you've licensed it on really ironclad conditions so that some third party can't take it back, and that that will withstand Um, withering scrutiny by the investor before they'll write a check. You know, you've got to have something special. Talk is really cheap in this business. So I think you have to have some IP. It can take different forms, but you've got to have something. So, okay, so you've got a company that sort of passes all the litmus tests. It's, you know, it's a big idea and a big market. The... You've got some early traction. You've raised some some angel or some seed money from friends and family. You get in front of somebody like Larry. You've got a product. He's already said he's not interested in investing in ideas. He wants to touch and use and, you know, really see what you've built. So what comes next, okay? Somebody comes to you having passed all of those sort of milestones. How do you evaluate the companies beyond that stage? What, what goes into your decision matrix? And, and maybe you can give some examples of portfolio companies. Sure. Well, look, I think, you know, we're at SF Music Tech, and I think it's a great time to, you know, talk about music as, as a part of that. So you've figured out, you know, you've got a great core tech, or you've developed this great product, and it's something that's, that's really, you know, unique and exciting. I, I, by the way, I don't feel like patents are, are necessarily all that interesting as much as that you could actually, you know, potentially make a patent. But a lot of things aren't really patentable. It's more that, you know, you've figured out something, you know, a unique combination of things. If you have a patent, that's great. But, but the patent itself, I don't think, has as much value as what it might ultimately do. Um, yeah, I think you want to be fundamentally changing something very exciting for a key part of the ecosystem. So like right now, it just seems in the last, uh, in the last year or so, I've been really excited about the live music space. Uh, it's just an area where, you know, the internet isn't actually disrupting people's desire to go see great live music. In fact, 
it's bringing them together to go see live music. So just highlighting a few different companies as examples. So like Jukely is allowing people to connect with friends to go see shows. So it helps you figure out, hey, I want to go see a show. Who do I actually go see it with? And that's a really exciting uh, promotional vehicle to help fill shows, which as an artist, you really care a lot about. And, um, or uh, less than three, which creates live virtual experiences for very large music festivals. So for like Electric, Daisy, or Ultra, you can log in and you're seeing the show, but you have this very exciting interactive layer that makes it a great virtual experience to be at. Or um, another company called Make Light that inside of the show, inside of the venue, it actually turns the phones into part of a light show fully synchronized with each other. So it's just driving incredible engagement and excitement. And so if you've been to EDM shows, which just have, you know, magnificent sound and lighting, you know, horrible performances of human interaction playing music on stage, but magnificent sound and lighting, you know, with a great party environment, um, they really understand the production values, uh, you know, deeply on, on how to create those environments. So... Uh, you know, another big area is just like the band fan connection because bands, they deserve to make a lot more money. And it's pretty obvious they're sure as hell not going to make it from selling music because music sales have kind of flattened out now from the analog to digital transition. It's declining. Most of, of the younger consumers just aren't really buying music that much. They're more interested in the on-demand services or radio or YouTube right, is a huge service. But there's all these amazing opportunities for bands to connect directly. So like a band page that lets you manage your data and your commerce and push it out to all these different points, which in turn creates capability to make revenue, but also ultimately fill shows. Just real quick, I, I, this is okay. Yeah. You, you talked about VCs earlier, and, and it's important that it, that you guys know that some VCs are not good VCs, right? They're it, from the, they're they, they're evil and mean and all that. And um, so they they might ask you for really you know specific metrics you know, on a weekly or a monthly basis, and you're and and, I'm, and you're sitting there thinking, dude, I got to work on my product and get my thing done, and you're asking me for some you know irrelevant numbers that may be helpful or may not be helpful. So it's important for you guys to also interview your VC, right? Get to know the, the person giving you the money. Um, don't, and so one, two, if you guys are, if you're a young startup, don't spend money on PR and bringing in a CFO and, you know, going to find celebrities to endorse your product. That shit doesn't work and you don't need it at that point anyway. And, and it, patents are interesting, but I kind of don't care if you have a patent or not. Um, I mean, it's interesting because now I know that you have something that's a little special and magical. Um, and that, and so from that standpoint, it's, it, you know, it, it, it sets up to some degree a protective moat around what you're doing, but I, I, it's not the end all and be all. And the last thing I'll say is um, when, the same question that you asked Larry. It's um, like, why are you doing this thing? Why are, why are you building whatever you're building? Um, you know, it's going to get hard. 
it's going to be really hard, and you're going to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And I can go get a job at X music company or what, you, know, you name the other company. So are you doing this for the long haul? Are you doing this to really because it's something that you have to do? Even if you don't get money, you're going to be doing this? So I try, and the example I like to give is that I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the investments that I'm most ex, uh, excited about is a company. This guy didn't go – not only did he not go to Stanford or Harvard or MIT or Wharton, he spent four years in jail. Um, and, you know, I've give, I gave him a half million bucks. And people looked at him, oh, this guy, you know, he's been in jail for four years. He, he's a domain expert in what he's building, right? And he's making a whole bunch of money right now on the outside. He knows what's going on in the prison system. He's got four engineers that are murdering it. Um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Although he went to jail for something else. You don't else want to work for, for that company. For pot. <laughs> for, well, he, and he's, a, he's a true entrepreneur, right? He went to jail because he saw that there was some inefficiencies in, in distributing marijuana. So he figured out how to make it much more efficient. He went to jail for four years. Using so, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so that's it. Why, why are you doing it? If you, could, you, know, you have some app that does music shit. What is that? What are you, for what? Because if it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck in about eight months from now you're like fuck what am I doing I, I can go get a job and I can go do something else but like what's the, you know did your sis, little sister grow up loving this kind of music and it's going away because of the, the Brazilian rainforest or something and I love it and you're gonna you're gonna do that forever right you're motivated so what, what's your me, why what's your reason for doing let it me, let me actually add something that's, that's a great point and it gets back to what you were talking about a couple of minutes ago Larry with, which you know everybody hears because they're in some way connected to the to music um, and I think this goes both for the people who are creating these things and for the VCs. Y- you really need to understand exactly what Eric's saying. Why are you doing this? You know, because, of course, we're in the wild, wild west. It's a gold rush, particularly music now is very hot. Once again, you know, years later, everybody thinks maybe there's, music, there's money to be made in music again. Well, for every, you know, yes, it's a great idea to have some kind of a company that connects bands and their fans you know, on some level, but there are a zillion of these out there. I mean, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've seen every possible thing and there, there are, you know, hundreds being created every day. You need to really look around whichever side you're on and go, is what I'm doing that much different than anything else that's out there? You know, the first thing is what itch am I trying to scratch here? And is what I'm trying to scratch a really big idea? Because whether you're the person putting your time and, and, and your, your money and energy into this, or you're the person who's going to be investing on the other side, you better figure out if there's a real, going to be a real return on that. And the first thing you need to do is your homework. Okay. If you have an idea, even if you're passionate about it, you better look around and see, is there some other company that's doing something or are other companies doing something very close to that? And how are they doing? Are they, are they succeeding? And is what you're doing going to be the differentiator? And is it such a big differentiator that you're going to be the one that actually succeeds doing that? So the first thing you do is your homework. Make sure that this is worth spending some time on. Because the first thing that someone's going to ask you is, you know, uh, if they're a smart investor is, okay, you want me to invest in your thing, you know, why is this different than everything else that has been thrown at me for the last five years, and, you know, why is yours the one that's going to succeed? So you better have your story down and also have done your homework. Um, because it's, it's, it's really important that you don't waste a lot of your time. There, there are so many uh, people trying to go after the same thing. Yes, it's the live sector is is fantastic, but you know it better be something that hasn't been done before, 
or that you've got some new interesting take on it. If you just look at the streaming sector right now, I mean, I, that's, you know, of course, with the Beats Apple thing, everybody's talking, and, and, you know, streaming being the savior of the music industry. You look at all the dozen-plus music streaming services that came around around the same time. They basically do the same thing. They basically have more or less the same catalog sizes and, you know, streaming rates or whatever and interfaces, but they basically are kind of fungible. At some point, there's going to be big consolidation. They happen to get started, and they were funded all at the same time. They're not all going to survive. So make sure that, that you know, really be, be clear why you're doing this. Or, or as Eric says, you may be better off just going and get a job with one of the other companies and saving yourself a lot of time and heartache. I'm going to just uh, chime in here about let's assume you have a good idea that you're unshakingly committed to it then you got to learn how to communicate it to these guys and that's a more complicated subject for just this conversation but two things are true number one you need to have a business plan number two you need to condense that down into a really good looking slide deck of 20 to 30 slides and then the real hard part you got to tell that story the thing that you've been thinking about for years with all of its complexities and nuances in 90 seconds and if you can't do that, don't bother. You, you ha- I mean, I'm curious to get the experts. To, do you agree? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't know if we're going to take questions. But yeah. I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let, me ask, let me ask one more question of the panel, and then we'll open it up for some, some audience questions. But I, I guess just, just on the picking up on what, what you, you said, Fred, and I guess this question is probably for you, Larry. But, you know, Fred said music is hot now. And... It's clearly getting hotter, but, you know, my experience has been that music tech has been a scary area for venture investors for a long time. Larry, you know, you say there are 100 investors capable of writing a Series A-sized check. There must not be more than a handful that are willing to write a Series A-sized check for music tech in this area. What are you seeing about the emergence of music tech as a sort of a mainstream venture play? Sure. Well, I think why music as an area is super hot is because people are super passionate about it. And it really, it sells devices. So if you look at every major internet company, they have a major music strategy because if you're delivering that amazing experience on your device, uh, you, you really have a, a major marketing opportunity. You can gain market share. And in fact, look no further than just the iPod and how they used music to sell incredible devices. Now, where music is a dirty word is when people hear about music tech, I think they often think, hey, we're using technology to sell music. And being a company that's getting music licenses to sell music, as it turns out, has been very toxic because the the uh, labels have not been cutting win-win deals with early-stage companies where they can both succeed and fail together. The incentive at the labels has really been around getting um, cash upfront advances and getting as much as possible. And then if the companies fail, they had the sort of the maximum extraction of those dollars before the failure. So if you look across my portfolio, uh, I'm not investing in companies that are actually requiring licenses where the primary business is selling money. A lot of the companies end up selling music as a consequence and they'll sell through third-party stores and whatnot and make affiliate fees, which is not a particularly exciting business, but it helps a bit. 
So I think there's been a lot of taint from the number of companies that have gone under attempting to sell music. So I think the innovation is much more around um, like search um, I'm super excited about because that's all about interface and and how you find music or discovery. Um, Interesting things in in education. A, A big revolution in actual gear. I mean, you don't need outboard gear. You know, I have an iPad mixer, a Mackie mixer. You know, you don't need a snake anymore. You don't need any outboard signal processing. In fact, I don't even want to mix. I, I just want to have it mix for me because I'm sitting behind the drums and most bands sound like crap because, you know, the bass player, the drummer is mixing, you know, ours included. So anyway, I think. Yeah, uh, questions? Yeah, so let's, let's open it up here for some questions. Yeah, right here. Uh, as a potential alternative uh, for venture funding or seed funding or other sources. Uh, when I think about Kickstarter, it makes me very nervous because uh, well, I see it good for two things. One, it could, you could learn something about your customers and if you're lucky, validate a market. Mm-hmm. And two, uh, it provides good working capital to fulfill the promises you're making on Kickstarter. Yeah. But as a source of actual business funding, it makes me nervous because I'm essentially locking in my business model because now I promises to people. Uh, from your point of view, do you really see it as a valid alternative? Or just something to supplement your funding strategy? It's it, al- it, yeah, it, it's, it's not an alternative. It, Kickstarter is exactly what its name says. It is something to kickstart a cycle. You know, it, it's built for non-equity, reward-based investing. You know, let's, let's, we don't have the time to talk about, you know, real equity crowdfunding, which hasn't truly come online yet. But Kickstarter works well if you are a product company and you need to raise some capital to manufacture or to fulfill early orders, maybe you can make a little margin on those and start a cycle. But you're not going to ever be able to scale a business with the kind of you know, money you can make off of Kickstarter. It is literally just jumpstart or kickstart something. And then you're going to have to bring in scale capital. From a VC standpoint, it just it proves valid. It validates the market yeah, and product. Concept. That's it. But it's good. We, we've had a couple of companies do Kickstarters. Boombotics is one. They launched this product in Kickstarter. And it's great to see the market. But I think there's a, a much bigger problem emerging on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which is that the products generally arrive extremely late or don't arrive and dramatically under promise. So I think there's a major backlash and brand problem emerging. Uh, I just feel like I'm sort of making a donation when I'm doing Kickstarter projects, I've done a bunch and you kind of burn out on it. So it has a very exciting novelty effect. Then you kind of feel like an idiot. <laughs> right here. Let's go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Chris. I'm with Ohm Records. I'm starting a new company called Up All Night. And um, I wondered if you could give us a range of cost of capital in the seed range versus Series A. Like what kind of what those deals look like typically, what the cost of capital is? So I'd say a a rule of thumb is that you're probably, when you raise money and you're doing priced rounds, you're probably going to sell between, you know, 15 and 40% of your company. And I'd say if you just picked an average number, it's probably 25% uh, for whatever size capital you raise. I mean, very rough, but that's a way, you know, to think about it. So if you're going to, go through a couple of rounds of financing, you know, if you took 30%, 30%, you would have sold half your company for those two rounds. At the angel level, there's typically notes that have a cap, 
and people might end up taking up to 10% dilution in, uh, in those notes. Sometimes, you know, it might go higher depending on how big the notes get, but it might be a 5 million cap and you might raise half a million bucks that converts into the next round with a discount. So that could be 10 to 12% dilution. Okay. One more, um, right here. Hi, my name is Alex, um, and this is for Eric. You mentioned before about you feel like having a good team that's worked before is is very important to you as an investor. I've heard that from a number of different investors. What about people that just don't have that? Right? We have friends. We have we, we work with people, and they're just like, "This isn't for me. I'm 40 years old, and I'm not going to go risk myself on." It's startup. great. Don't worry about it. Just you just won't get money from VCs. That's fine. Just you'll get money from <laughs> angels, or whatever. Or, or that's it. Or you just pray, are there things pray. for you that you it's would rampant. say that you would tend to be okay more with that as opposed to does that mean later stage or what would you do uh, so if you if you're if your team is new or uh, i would spend some, I, you you have to just convince me that that's not going to be an issue and i don't know how you do that but you got to convince me that you guys have worked together similarly I, you know you know you, I, I don't actually know yeah forget it you got to go go get money from angels or something <laughs> you're not gonna, <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, i don't know how you convince me that you guys are going to be okay I, maybe you can i don't know come talk to me i don't i, I don't know do you have a good story? That's it. It's only story. Do you have yeah, a good story? Story is yeah, important. I mean, what about you and your team and why you guys? Why it's going to make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't convincing. You got to convince yourself Everybody. first. <laughs> Everybody, yeah, of course our story's good. Okay. But. All right. Well, then, yeah. All right. Well, I mean, it's hard, but yeah, talk All to right. us. Are we out? All right. Thank you so very much. Thank you, panel. Good job. Good job. It's fun.